This is Comic Shenanigans, episode 65, Comic Reviews for the week of March 27th. Welcome once again to Comic Shenanigans. This is episode 65, Comic Reviews for the week of Wednesday, March 27th. I'm your host, Adam Chapman. Thanks again for joining us. Um, so we had, a lot of comics came out this week, and uh, I'm actually happy I was able to go through a lot of them. So this will be a sli- probably a slightly longer review episode than normal. Usually I, I try to keep it to about 45 minutes or less. This might go a little bit longer. Um, there was a lot of books that were just kind of middle of the road and not much better uh, this week, unfortunately. Um, so let's just, I guess, just jump right into it because there's a lot to go through. Uh, first up is A plus X number six. Uh, obviously, for people who've been following this book, it's more of a, it's, it's a, not a, I guess it's kind of like an anthology kind of book. It's just basically one-offs depicting uh, uh, these team-ups between an Avengers character and an X-Men character. They don't, don't generally go a lot deeper than that. Um, it's kind of, it's basically they like doing a, a, a AVX versus and then they're like, well, let's just keep it going. It's actually not a bad idea. It's kind of like a Marvel team-up style. Um, and one thing I I guess I, I, I think of it as being a book that's very much feels like a throwaway because it doesn't matter. And it got me thinking, like, what does it mean for a comic book to matter? Um, and that's a, a, a much deeper discussion and probably not for today and one I'd rather have with other guests, etc. But, like, when does it matter... Uh, for a book, like, is it a one-shot matter? Um, it does have to be in a core book. Like, it used to be back in the day where, like, you'd have a, a comic would uh, get interrupted with, like, you have Onslaught, for example. It hits the Marvel Universe. It takes over a few issues of each book. You have uh, two bookends. You have uh, Onslaught X-Men that kind of starts the, the major crossover uh, as a one-shot, and then a, a one-shot to, to end it. But the entire thing happens in the main book. Um, there are all these different books, so if you wanted to find out what happened, that's where you look. But then the increasing trend became to have all the cro- major crossovers instead have their own miniseries and then bleed into other books. Uh, originally, it was through like having actual tie-ins, like you had Civil War, and you had a Civil War tie-in of Amazing Spider-Man or you know whatever other book there was, Captain America. Um, but then, then you have a shift to having uh, in Secret Invasion, instead of actually disturbing the flow of those books, now you've got uh, miniseries, like uh, The Amazing Spider-Man Secret Invasion miniseries. You have some some books that are actually being taken over, like X-Factor and others, and then you have Secret Invasion X-Men. So then you have this kind of weird blurring of the line, where you're not really sure where they're going with this. Like, part of the tie-ins are actually taking over the main book. Of, of a certain book, and then some of the tie-ins are just in their own miniseries, and a lot of times those miniseries aren't ones that end up getting purchased because they feel like they're not as intrinsic. They're there's something extra, um, so it's kind of hard to know where to go for these events. And then you have AVX, where again, a lot of the tie-ins were actually in uh, the the books, like all the Avengers books became uh, AVX tie-ins instead of just having AVX miniseries. In fact, there was just AVX or Avengers vs. X-Men and AVX versus, and that was it. So it's just an interesting perspective and so it, it may, it's something I've been thinking of lately is just, you know, what, what makes these books not feel like they matter or not? Especially with the uh, the recent Age of Ultron, uh, as we'll get into this week, there's a few tie-ins now they've gone another route it's like, which I, th- I feel is very very disingenuous and just screws up numbering even further like it's bad enough we have zero issues half issues point one issues whatever but now in in some cases point one point two point three point four issues which is ridiculous like what the hell's the point of that just name it for you know anyway that's a whole other diatribe but then in when you have age of ultron now you have books where it's superior spider-man 6 au basically it's a one shot it's uh age of age of ultron you know, Amazing Spider-Man or Superior Spider-Man. That's what it is, but that's what it's. But it's not actually being released that way. It's kind of like with Amazing Spider-Man six ninety nine point one was basically Morbius Zero, but they didn't release it that way. So it's just a ridiculous. And then even with Guardians of the Galaxy, they released issue zero point one, not zero, which was used to be good enough. Now it's zero point one. So it's it's a whole murky. And especially with that book, like why not just launch it with a damn number one, like. You have to lead up to everything, and it was numbering is ridiculous. Uh, my main thing was about what things matter. This is a book that feels like it doesn't matter, quote unquote. 
some of the stories are good, but they don't feel like they're like they're in continuity. But they're very like they're never going to be referenced anywhere. Or at least that's the way it feels, and so that's what I think going to affect people's enjoyment of a book that's three ninety nine, which is just kind of not even telling a coherent story in every issue, but it's more just we're throwing some characters and some art, um, artists together and, and writers, and we're going to see what happens, and it has mixed results as a result. Sorry, that doesn't I can't say results twice in a sentence, but apparently I did. So next up is, uh, well, first up is AVX, um, sorry, A plus X. I'm all over the place today. A, A plus X number six. So this is written by, I got the Captain Marvel and Wolverine team up first. Written by Peter David with artwork by Giuseppe Camincoli. He's recently been an artist on Amazing Spider-Man uh, with uh, Michelle Benevento, I guess probably on inks uh, and finishes. And then you have The Thing and Gambit teaming up with Mike Costa as the writer and Stefano Caselli as the artist. So in the first case, you have a pretty good creative team. I like Peter David. I like Giuseppe Camincoli. Don't know who this Mike Costa's person is writing The Thing and Gambit, but I do like Stefano Caselli. Um, now, the story with Wolverine and uh, Carol is I, funny and, and, and also at the same time, it definitely feels like it doesn't matter. But it's not bad. It's basically them having a bit of an argument while they're playing poker and they're kind of trying to fake each other out um peter david has written i believe some angel and faith or or buffy comics so him referencing a thing from the angel uh um tv series is actually kind of funny and it's the idea of who would win cavemen or uh or astronauts and this actually is like the, the brunt of the stories i'm saying you ever see that angel yeah this is what happened in that episode and it, it's not bad. It, it's very throwaway. It's kind of fun. It's kind of silly, uh, but it's not bad. I actually did, enjoyed it more than I uh, expected to. The uh, the second story is not all that well written, but it's basically Ben Grimm teaching some Yancey kids a lesson uh, using Gambit to do so as a swindler. The artwork's actually pretty solid because I mean you got a great artist on it. Stefano Caselli does a great job at showing Thing as really being really big. Like I like how he doesn't shy away from making him look as big as he should. Uh, and his Gambit's actually pretty cool too. So if like if Caselli ever wanted to do Gambit, I think that'd be a really good uh, a match. Overall, I mean, not the strongest story. I think overall for the issue with two stories combined, I gave it a seven out of ten. It's not a bad read. It's just again has that problem of does it really matter? But it's it's kind of fun. So and if you're gonna pick up something that may not matter, at least have a good time doing it, right? Uh, next up is Age of Ultron number three. Now, I've been pretty hard on this book. Since it started, I uh, I, at least, I I feel like this is an event where I I'd ra- I don't I I think they want it to be like we jumping in, we're just showing you that everything's changed, everything's crazy. Obviously, we know there's there has to be a lot of my uh, time travel or something, in, in order to fix this because it's just such a mess, and that kind of takes away a bit from the story. Like some stories, like you feel like everything's really going to hell, but nothing's too destroyed that you ever feel like oh this is going to be easily reckoned. Whereas here, it's quite different. You feel like, yeah, this is going to be retcon. Something's going to happen. They're not just going to let people die and have all these things have happened in the past. Like that's not going to happen. And they just kind of they just kind of jump forward and they show these things. But I don't know. It just feels like it's really slow burn to get like to get to the point. Like we're thirty percent done the story, and we really haven't moved all that much. Like we've seen some stuff happen. We have Red Hulk and Taskmaster kind of teaming up here with Black Panther. You have Captain America's squad doing their own thing, and they send uh, Luke Cage in, basically, to try and barter and sell She-Hulk, and instead of finding Ultron, he finds the Vision, which, again, doesn't even feel that different, because the Vision has been used to take over the world before, like back in the old-school Avengers title. Uh, I think, I can't remember exactly when it took place, but it was before, I believe, the West Coast Avengers, or maybe even around when they first premiered. Um... It's all right, but nothing about this issue is really that strong to me. The artwork is blasé. Part of it says the artwork is meant to be very like bleak and uh, depressing, but I just found I'm reading a comic book, I, I, a superhero comic, and I want it to be a little bit bigger than life. I don't want it to look like life, and I just found the colors are drab. The artwork, it's it's not Ultimates, and I think that's a huge difference. And it doesn't have the same zest. It doesn't feel like there's as much life in the in the pencils, and it just feels very boring. I give the issue issue a six. Like I, I'm just not all that interested in this crossover at all. And I thought I might, I, I thought I might be interested because it has some potential. But like, if you read the um, Avengers 12.1 or whatever the issue was in the Free Comic Book Day, the one that basically was the idea of launching uh, the Age of Ultron, 
it seems so much more vibrant and exciting in terms of the artwork. And then you look at this, and this is just drab, uh, boring, and totally not exciting at all. But that's an, which is really unfortunate because it could be so much better than this. You have um, uh, Bendis and uh, Brian Hitch, and this should be better. And it's just stumbling right out of the gate. And it's thirty way, thirty percent of the way in. I'm really not all that sold on this so far. Uh, plus, I I don't know if anyone's seen some of the uh, the listings, but I guess issue ten. Uh, after issue ten, then there's t- issue ten AU. So it's just like do a aftermath, call it something else. Just stop just throwing at the AU at the end and having that be something. Like just change the numbering, or ugh, it's just really frustrating. I know it's such a stupid, um, like nitpicky, you know, stupid fan thing to do, but like it just bothers me anyway. Uh, let's move on from Age of Ultron number three, and we're going to look at uh, Aquaman number 18. So this book is uh, still uh, following up on the events of the Throne of Atlantis storyline, which I really enjoyed. Um, I'm really I'm really just digging this book. Sorry, you might hear my cat in the background who's decided to make herself known. Um, I'm really enjoying this book. It's actually pretty cool. I'm... I, Never thought I'd say the day. I'd see the day where Aquaman was just a really enjoyable and engaging book, but it just definitely has been. Um, Jeff Johns just understands how to write Aquaman as a character and have fun with him, and I like that they've kind of changed the status quo a little um, with everything that's been going on with uh, with Arthur. Now that he's kind of basically taken the throne back as a result of what happened in Throne of Atlantis, so I like that it's kind of thrown things on its head. Um, this issue is the first part of Death of a King, as chapter one. Uh, it's penciled by Paul Pelletier, uh, who's actually an, a nice fit for this book. I mean, not quite as dynamic at times as Ivan Reyes. Uh, and I think sometimes the colors aren't as sharp, but that's not obviously the, uh, the artist's, uh, fault. Uh, I like how Volko is being written here and how basically, like, Aquaman needs him at the end of the day. And the idea that they're trying to get back all the, uh, Atlantean, uh, Weapons, and also you have Mira here, and she's kind of ends up in jail. I actually really dug this. It was a fun, fun and enjoyable read. It's a good book. I give it an eight out of ten. Uh, next up is Astonishing X Men number sixty. Now this is the next part of the Exterminated storyline, which is crisscrossing between uh, Astonishing X Men, Age of Apocalypse, and uh, Extreme X Men, which is a really weird smorgasbord of books to try and patched together like those are books that don't necessarily go together um like two of them could but i don't it's it's just a weird mix uh the story is by david laugham uh marjorie lou and greg pack uh marjorie lou is actually the writer of this issue with uh, matteo bufagni and renato arlem as artists and they have colors by christopher sotomayor and lee Lowridge. um and the art, I guess the cover on the cover art is by Giuseppe Camincoli. There's that name again with Cam Smith and Rain Burrito. With, excuse me, Phil Noto doing the variant cover. Um, not a big fan of where the story is going just because like, it's, just, it's, just, it's just this weird mess. Like the, the beginning is just this action sequence which feels very mindless. And then you kind of just sever the story into different directions. Um, you know, you got Wolverine and... And the other Wolverine, basically the two Logans going in one place. And then you've got, uh, I, I like the idea that the, the only way that they can kind of go up against this um, this threat to their reality is for the Age of Apocalypse people to be, basically be able to harness the power of Apocalypse, which they, put in, they had um, managed to kind of sequester away from uh, Weapon Omega, uh, or whatever his name is. <laughs> Weapon X, basically. I'm just this. This issue really didn't really make me care about reading the rest of this storyline. I don't care to see these teams interact. I, I, I was kind of mildly interested before, and now I'm just like, meh. I don't care. It. It's not a very good storyline from the beginning. Again, this issue, the the issue that preceded it, the extermination, or I think it was called the extermination or exterminated number one, was a little bit stronger and setting things up, and then at the end it just kind of went totally haywire because you had a pretty clear thoroughview and then suddenly you had the age of apocalypse and suddenly the extreme x-men people and there's not a lot of equalization in terms of making sure that the storyline makes sense as to why all these characters have shown up at the same point and then they just kind of they don't do enough to really make you understand if you haven't been reading extreme x-men and then you're just like i don't i, I don't know and i don't really care 
And that's how this book felt like. Like, this book actually could have benefited from having that old school, you know, over overdone narration to kind of catch you up and under, make you understand what's going on and who everyone is. People don't like that kind of stuff, but they also don't like it when you don't have any idea what's going on and aren't really given a good toehold or foothold into understanding what's going on in the story that you're reading. Um, so I didn't care much for it. Six and a half out of ten. Next up is Batman Incorporated, number nine. Obviously, number eight was the issue that dealt with the death of Damian Wayne. This wasn't a bad issue. It just was kind of an odd... It was a very strange issue because, like, you have a lot of um, moving back and forward in time because you have, you know, the actual burial of Damian, and then you're flashing to the time when he actually... Just after he died, when Batman's fighting against the clone of Damian... Uh, this issue, this issue is written by Grant Morrison, artwork by Chris Burnham, um, but then you also have Jason Masters on art on pages eight to nine and twelve to thirteen. Um, so, I mean, and it's not bad art. I mean, and it's not even a bad story. It's just a weird juxtaposition because it kind of takes away a little bit of the um, the tense nature of the story. Like, are they going to make it? Um, like, obviously, you know, Batman's going to lose the fight another day, but you, you want to have a little bit more suspense, and by having the juxtaposition of the burial or and get and going to the burial having the funeral for Damien juxtaposed to having this last fight right after Damien died it kind of takes away that 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 uh tension and suspense um it, it's it's an interesting issue still i mean there's some of that i really like i like that batman having to kind of deal with um how who he was unable to stop the uh, Damien from dying basically and then he's able to escape but then like he has to go into underground hiding but then that's where it really goes off the rails like the police department basically is is consorting with terrorists like that just doesn't make a lot of sense um but the parts with Batman really confronting that his son is dead that is a lot stronger so it was a little bit of an uneven issue but the artwork is pretty strong and enjoyable for the most part I gave it a seven because uh, again, some of it just didn't make a lot of sense or made me scratch my head. But then you had the element, the parts where you know Bruce is giving the the brief eulogy, or uh, which is a great summation, although a little terse and not nearly as heartfelt as it maybe could be. And just having him deal with the fact that his son is dead is, is really, really, really emotional stuff. And obviously, like it's not, it's no Batman or Robin uh, eighteen. Like that was a freaking fantastic issue, which summed up so much and said so much without actually saying anything because there was no dialogue. Uh, whereas this was not as strong. Uh, let's move on to Batman The Dark Knight, number 18. This wasn't a bad read uh, overall. Um, let me just pull it up. Uh, let's see, the creative team. The artwork is by Ethan Van Skyver. It's written by Greg Hurwitz. Um, I went back and forth on this. First of all, I don't think that Van Skyver's artwork is nearly as strong, clean, or smooth as it is in other instances I've seen in the past few years so it's not his best artwork uh, the story by Greg Hurwitz is actually pretty interesting though and kind of messed up um, just dealing with like how messed up a character Matt Hatter is that being said as much as I did enjoy the Matt Hatter parts and it was really kind of creepy and tragic what he ends up doing when he finds, he finds his Alice uh, and like he finds her again uh, my problem with that is that uh, it just feels like a really long prolonged origin store or peeking behind the curtain at, at who Matt Hatter is. Uh, also, does Batman really do what it looks like he's doing here and why? And it's that that seemed out of character. Yeah, Bruce Wayne revealing himself to the girl he's like that he's not who she who she thinks he is, he's actually Batman. But in a weird way. Not in like a, a simple like I'm Batman, but in a hey let's jump out the window under this uh you know, this bat plan I have. So kind of an odd issue. Fairly well illustrated, although, again, I, as I was saying, it's not as coherent or um, the line work isn't as strong or well put together as normal. Uh, I give it a 7.5 out of 10, though. It's still fairly strong. Uh, next up is from Image. Uh, this is East of West, number one. I was excited about this book because it's a, a new book written by Jonathan Hickman, and it's uh, illustrated by Nick Dragota, who had worked on Fantastic Four and FF with him. Um, so I was they're really excited to see what new sci-fi romp uh, Hickman might put together. I mean, I'm enjoying his uh, Manhattan Projects immensely, although the last issue wasn't the greatest because 
I don't know, it just didn't work for me, really. Um, but I'm really enjoying, like, his Avengers, his new Avengers, so I'm really enjoying a lot of his output right now as a writer, so I was like, okay, well, i got to buy his new book. There's no way I'm not going to buy it. And then I bought it, and I read it, and I didn't really like it all that much. I found it was a little bit too out there without making a lot of sense, and it was a weird mix of genres, and... I don't know, it didn't quite grab me in the same way. Like, I read some really glowing reviews, and then I read it, and I was like, eh. Like, I I like that there's the sense that anything could really happen, because obviously it's creator-owned, so there's no, uh, there's nothing that's beholding them to keeping certain characters alive, or anything like that, but I just expected better, and I wanted better, and I wanted more, and this wasn't it. So I I gave it a 7 out of 10. It's, uh, what is this story about? Well... Like, that's part of the problem, is that I read it yesterday, and now I can't really remember what I was writing about, or reading about. It's basically, uh, it starts with uh, the three horsemen, um, this was before, obviously, but only three are are kind of uh, reborn, and then you have this weird alternate history of the United States, which is kind of intriguing and interesting, Uh, but you go from this kind of interesting idea that there's this, you know, these three different people that all have... A certain part of um, uh, the mess, this uh, you know, quote unquote, the message, uh, which is being given, and these three different people over different times are doing it. But then you you go forward, and you have this weird kind of western, and and that's the part where it kind of lost me. So it was kind of intriguing, kind of interesting. That it was building up to some of them that had some kind of weird meaning, and it meant more than we realized. And that was what does this all mean? And then it just went in this weird direction that I didn't care for. So I gave that a seven out of ten. Uh, next up is. Fantastic Four 5AU. This book, oh my god. Okay, I was going to give it a 5. I'm thinking more like a 3. But here's the thing. It's not like it's a necessarily... Well, it is poorly written, but it's not like it's bad, uh, badly illustrated. Uh, it's written by Matt Fraction, artwork by Andre Arayo. Uh First of all, you have the idea that... While they're on their on their trip, uh, Franklin and Valeria realize that the FF has left because they got um, basically a beacon from home and from T'Challa saying that it's the end of the world. Uh, Ultron is kind of doing his thing. You got to come home. Okay, that's that's fine. Them leaving the kids in the middle of space is a little weird and bizarre. Like what the hell? That's fine. Whatever. I mean, it, it's weird, but you know, it's not, not the end of the world. But then you have. And you have the uh, the Fantastic Four fighting against Ultron. That's fine too. I mean, obviously they they fail, and that kind of sets up what happens in Age of Ultron uh, proper. That's not where I have the problem. The problem is in these weird, you know, we're leaving messages that uh, are left for uh, the uh, the kids that each of the members, except for the mom, leave. First of all, the mom would always leave a message, but whatever. They leave these little holographic messages that they record. Uh, to say goodbye. Now, the problem here is with the things. Um, like, Reed's is okay. It's kind of emotional, but it's 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 kind of interesting how they do it. Uh, the things is absolutely terrible. It changes everything we know about the thing as a character. It completely... Uh, it is so poorly written. It's just... It gives me a headache thinking about it. So, if you haven't read this, you're like, what the hell are you talking about? Okay, so this is the thing's message that he gives to the kids. He says, uh, you know, this is really heavy. And he's like, uh, I, don't, I ain't never told nobody this. I think maybe Dr. Doom is all my fault. And he says, when me and your dad were kids and we were all at school, the guy was a rich jerk. I messed with this experiment he had in their room there. And I didn't mean to, I mean, I don't know if I did, but I ain't never told no one that before. Okay, so what this is referring to is that Dr. Doom was trying to find a way to basically save his mother's soul and uh, go to hell. Uh, he had constructed a machine. Uh, in the, the usual retelling of it is that he's so arrogant, and Reed Richards is like, "There's something wrong with your, you know, the flaw. There's a flaw here. You got to re- re-examine it." And uh, Von Doom is so on his high horse and so arrogant and so much hubris. hubris sorry, hubris. Um, but he's like, "I can do this. Uh, I'm right. I'm so smart. I'm, I'm smarter than you, Richards." And he goes ahead with the experiment, and it blows up in his face. It scars him. What leads him to the monks that eventually craft his uh, his faceplate, that, and that's what kind of puts him on the path to becoming Doctor Doom. So, what makes it such a great origin is that he's completely at fault. It's he blames other people, but it is his fault that he w- was left that way. 
And he's not as smart as he thinks he is. And he's never really going to be able to come to realize this. Every Richard is smarter, but that's part of the core facet of the character. So in one panel, or two panels, uh, Matt Fraction has taken all that and taken a giant dump on it. Because he's basically said, no, no, actually, the thing is a bit of a douchebag. He messed with Reed Richard, uh, with Victor Von Doom's experiment. And the Victor Von Doom really is that smart. He is the smartest man in the room. He was justified. He has a reason to be angry. He's just been directing at the wrong person. And uh, he's not that bad a person. Well, he got Everything that happened to him is because of, of Ben Grimm, not because Dr. Doom himself. That is ridiculous. Um, I cannot believe they let him write this. I can't believe they, they published this. Uh, I think there's been a bit of an outcry from fans of, of uh, The Thing, and for good reason, because this is retarded. Uh, I apologize for using that. I usually don't like saying the word retarded, but um, this is just not good writing. It doesn't make any sense. It doesn't add anything to Ben Grimm as a character. In fact, it takes a lot away, both from him and from Doctor Doom, or actually adds a lot to Doctor Doom in terms of he's actually not um, not that bad a guy because he's been messed with in his entire life. Everything that happened stems from that one incident. Instead of him just being an arrogant jerk, he was messed with. Suddenly, he is actually in the right in some ways, and Ben Grimm is in the wrong. Ben Grimm is one of the best people in the Marvel Universe. He's so pure of heart. He's one of the greatest characters that Stan and Jack ever created. Matt Fraction disagrees and takes that all away in two panels. No thank you. Uh, this, so that's why I'm going to give this a three. The artwork isn't even that strong either, but it's the writing, which is absolutely atrocious. So, I mean, Arujo does his best, uh, Andre Arujo does his best with the artwork, but uh, he cannot save, uh, he cannot do anything to help this this sinking ship, uh, which has just been torpedoed by some absolutely terrible writing. So I'm going to get off my, my soapbox there, but that was just awful. Uh, next up is FF number five. Um, this isn't bad. It's just such a weird book. It occupies a weird space. Uh, so it's written by Matt Fraction with artwork by Michael and Laura and Alred. Um, in this, you have uh, Black, Bolt's, Black Bolt Medusa's son coming to stay with them. They're wondering about what's going on with Human Torch because Human Torch is obviously acting out because he's a little bit crazy and he's not quite right in the head. Uh, you have Lockjaw coming to visit as well. Um, you have uh, uh, She Thing kind of playing around with the, the, the mask she can wear. Uh, you have an amazingly hilarious panel where you have uh, Willie Lumpkin teaching a class, I guess, about uh, birds and the bees, and calling him Professor Lumpkin is awesome. Uh, you have uh, Human Torch going crazy, trying to burn everything down, and at the end, you have basically it's being exposed that, you know, uh, it's WTFF, you know, what the Fantastic Four, like, what is going on? Um, and then at the end of the issue, you have this glimpse of, you have uh, like, uh, Alex Power trying to basically go to uh, Latveria and you also have uh, Bentley waking up and having the wizard creepily being above his bed which I don't really like much of uh, it's not a bad issue it's got some weird quirks but you know, overall I mean it, it's like Shakespeare compared to uh, Fantastic Four or 5U, 5AU I give it a 6.5 out of 10 though it's kind of been that week uh, next up is Flash number 18 uh, this is another book. I give it a seven and a half out of ten. Uh, it is uh, written by by Brian Bucciolato. So instead of just being written by him and um, his uh, compatriot uh, Francis Manipal, it says just by him. And the artwork is by Philin. Uh The artwork is done by. Let me just pull that up. Um, uh, let's see, Marco Takara. Now, thankfully, because you have Bucciolato on colors, the book has a consistent visual tone. Um, the story is actually not bad. You have the trickster kind of uh, being um, hunted for something he didn't really do or he didn't commit. You have uh, the Flash dealing with Speed Force, which is a group basically of Turbine and uh, someone else who basically have escaped from the Speed Force after the last issue, and now they're trying to be this little team. Uh, you have this weird group called the Outliners who believe in... Um, uh, the trickster and think that you know he's one of them and they're trying to protect him and for being unlawfully detained and then you have at the la at the end of the issue you have uh, the Flash going to go deal with them but then he realizes that the Speed Force is gone and powers are gone 
Um, and it looks like, unfortunately, did Flash's, where did Flash Flash's powers go? Check out Dial H number 11. How does Flash fight an army without powers? So I'm like, uh, I don't like it when other books kind of have a weird impact on my book like that. But I think I knew this was kind of coming. It's not a bad issue. The artwork's all right, but it's not the strongest. The storyline's actually pretty interesting. Uh, it's finally doing something a little bit different and with uh the rogues and with uh axel walker so i'm interested to see where the story goes the artwork wasn't quite up to the snuff but um i give it a seven and a half over out of ten overall uh the next book is gambit number 10 this book has been uh, a little bit of an up and down road for me and any anyone who's been listening to the podcast over the last few months will have known that like i'm i'm really not sold on gambit as a book um it has potential, but it just keeps flitting around and not really deciding what it wants to be half the time. Um, so let's get down to this issue. This is Gambit number 10. Uh, first of all, that cover, kind of ridiculous. I just don't like how they keep making this girl look. like Basically, she's like a Tomb Raider reject. Um, Gambit looks fine, obviously, because he's clothed. <laughs> um, so this issue, written by uh, Asmus... And it's penciled by Clay Mann with Leonard Kirk. Um, the artwork, sorry, the inks are by Seth Mann, Clay Mann, and Jay Leaston. Um, it's 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 not a it's it's better than some of the issues have been. It just feels very like uh, like very paint by numbers. Like you have them breaking in place, and then they go up against this this mechanical construct. They have to find a way to survive and get out of there intact. And then just when they think they do, then Rogue shows up. Like, that's basically what happens. Uh, it's just, I don't find it all that, as nearly as charming as um, Asmus wants it to be. Uh, that's why, like, it's hard for me to even say really, like, what to think about what, a lot about what's going on in the story. Because there's just not much of a story to be told. Like, it just, it kind of happens. I'm interested to see what happens next issue, because Rogue's going to be in it. And, I mean, that... That could be interesting, but it could also go very, very wrong. Uh, Clayman's artwork is gorgeous, but it's not quite enough to make up for a relatively boring story. So I gave it a 6 out of 10. Uh, next up is Gardens of the Galaxy number 1. Ugh, this is a book that's hard to review because, on the one hand, um, it, it doesn't in any way feel like it takes place in the same cosmic universe as Guardians of the Galaxy's last iteration. Like, the only reason this version even exists is because of the popularity of the last one. Because the last one was such a darling, is the reason why Groot, is, Groot and Rocket Raccoon and all these characters, why they even have a movie coming up. It's not because Bendis is writing a new version of them with this new version of Star-Lord that's probably more like what we're going to see in the movie. It's because these other other writers who were, had a much better handle on what they were going to be doing with the story... Uh, put together something really amazing and it a lot of people really bonded with it and really loved it and then Bendis writes something totally different and like this just doesn't even feel like the Star-Lord that we used to know this doesn't feel like the Peter Quill that we got to know back in Annihilation and I guess that's kind of my problem with this book is that like I want to enjoy it I want to love it I want to love that the Guardians of the Galaxy are back but like this doesn't feel like Peter Quill. This isn't what Peter Quill even wears in clothing. This isn't Gamora. Like that is nothing like Gamora. First of all, doesn't wear clothes, so I don't know what she's wearing here. It's just none of it really quite feels right. Um, having uh, Iron Man join them, that that I'm okay with. It's fine. It's kind of a weird little thing. It's kind of neat to have him there, but I don't know. I, I just don't care a lot for how Bendis is writing this. I don't care how he's writing that. Like it just feels like what happened in the version of the Garden of the Galaxy I love is, is just feels like it's been tossed aside like this doesn't feel like the same Peter Quill this doesn't feel like, the, like a man with the same kind of demons uh, and I miss the costumes that they used to have instead of like these new very generic looking things that they're wearing um, the artwork is is gorgeous I mean it's by uh, it's by Steve McNiven with uh, inks by John Dell, colors by Justin Ponser. So it looks quite nice. It's like a great looking book. And there's no problem there. It's just, I don't like some of the designs, but it's not because they're not illustrated well. It's just because I just don't, I think they've been done better elsewhere. Or their better designs have existed. Uh, I gave the book a 7 out of 10. I feel like it's more like an 8 for art and a 6 for story. This story just bothers me. And I guess Bendis has been saying, oh, I'll address the cancer burst and all that stuff. Yeah, with the most bearish lip service. Like, maybe he's going to do more later, and I shouldn't be so harsh now. But, like, the fact that, like, you... 
like I think the dad who's supposed to be like king of the galaxy basically like that's what they play him as uh he he has no real concept of really what um Peter Quill's been doing and yet like how does that even make sense and and he even says uh I'm trying to find the exact dialogue because it's just very um very bendis like I'm gonna reference continuity but not really reference it at all and that doesn't make any sense. Um, sorry, I'm just trying to find the exact panel of what's going on. Uh, I can't find it. And it's just him being the Star-Lord. I don't remember that actually being a birthright, but anyways, it just, I don't know if I really care for how Bendis wants to write this. Especially because I love, I love the other version of Peter Quill so much. And like, uh, in the, when the Guardians of the Galaxy were based on Nowhere, like, that was so cool. And, uh, this just doesn't work for me. So, anyway. It is what it is, I guess. Uh, oh yeah, here we go. I get updates on you, you know. Uh, I heard you took on Thanos. Something about something in the Cancerverse and all that. Really? That's what we get? That's what... That's what... Ugh. You know, screw off. Like, if you want to write this book, get Dan Abner and Andy Lanning to do it. Because they understood these characters and now it just feels like this like they're they're jumping into this universe and throwing away everything that I liked about it. Like Nova, like it was a good book and the first two issues were solid. But I liked Richard Ryder and I liked the, the version that Dan Abner and Andy Lanning came up with. Especially during uh, Annihilation, how he became like a war hero and then how he was dealing with the world mind being in his in his brain. Like that was so good. And then you have the the, the, these two, Jeff Loeb and Brian Michael Bendis, are like, oh, people like these cosmic characters, and they're going to be in a movie. Let's write them, and let's not write them nearly as well, because that'd be too hard to try and fall in line with what they were doing before. I personally it just pisses me off. Um, so that's a seven out of ten. Next up is Morbius: The Living Vampire, number three. I'm going to give this a nice big five, and it probably deserves less. It's not a good book. This is. First of all, the cover's awful. Uh, it's written by Joe Keating, artwork by Richard Elson. The artwork's not bad. Uh, this Actually, the artwork is the bright point, the bright spot here. The story is just crap. I mean, this is not a Morbius story. Morbius used to be about supernatural threats and not just taking on some guy um, and then trying to save some guy's life and dealing with his bloodlust. Like, this could be so much more interesting or engaging, and it is none of those things. Uh, I'm going to give that a 5 out of 10. If it feels like I'm going to rush a little, it's just because I know this episode is going a little longer than I would have liked. So um, cause we're almost nearing the 40-minute mark, and we're still we're only like halfway through, so I might be speeding up a little bit. So apologies in advance. Um, next up, after Morbius Living Vampire, Red Lanterns number 18. Okay, so we're about to hit uh, through three issues after this that are all going to be like 6s or 5s. This, is, uh, this was a, a bit of a rut. Uh, as I said before, I read my books in alphabetical order. I don't know why. I just I, I make the list of all the books I'm going to be talking about on an episode, and then I read them in that order, and uh, it's alphabetical. And it sometimes it means that I get a lot of crap in the middle. Like it's not like I read all the books I'm most excited for at first. No, it just means that sometimes we have weird crap pockets. But I guess it's better than reading all the books I don't want to read last, because then you definitely have a crap pocket. But I guess then you'd be able to avoid an entire section of the episode. But anyway, this is Red Lanterns number 18, Wrath of the First Lantern Part 8. I cannot believe this is Part 8, but it doesn't surprise me. The storyline is so freaking slow. It's not good. You have the First Lantern once again... He's taunting someone this time. He's taunting Atrocitus, showing what could have been if Atrocitus, uh, if the Manhunters had never killed uh, everyone, and uh, on his planet, and instead he was able to, you know, stay stay there and and raise revolution, and eventually it means he gets killed by his own son. Um, this isn't good. This isn't good at all. <laughs> I, I don't care. And I like the artwork by Miguel Sepulveda. Uh, the artwork. It's pretty good, and then it's written by Peter Milligan, who I don't even think does a poor job, but just, I think that they basically said, this is what you're going to be doing for two months, uh, enjoy, and it's piss poor, I've read the same story like five times already, I'm done, like I don't want to read this anymore, like it's not, in and of itself, it's not a bad issue, it's just the fact that I've read this issue five times, or at least it feels like, this is part eight, like get to the point, what is the point, like at this point, the what's been happening is that you have 
the first lantern mocking everyone and harnessing their their rage or their hope or whatever emotions he wants and showing them what could have been in their different in their past if they'd taken an alternate route. That's it. It's been eight issues already. What the hell? Like I'm done. I don't want to. Re- I don't want to read this anymore. Um, this could have been so much better. And at least you have a little bit of the uh, the other Red Lantern, the human one, and dealing with and then Blee's showing up uh, after he's trying to date this girl on Earth. That's at least something to look forward to every other page. But I give this a six and a half. It probably deserves lower. But I really did like the artwork, even though the story was awful. It was so atrocious. Not atrocious, atrocious. Uh, that brings you us to uh, Savage Hawkman number 18. I've actually enjoyed some of the recent issues of this book. I don't know why. Uh, this issue didn't make me like it or love it. This just issue just made me feel like, why did I like this again? Um, it wasn't all that good. Uh, the story didn't really go anywhere. The, the Shadow Thief portions just felt like it took too long to get to the point. DeFalco, this isn't his best work by any means. And this isn't Bennett's best work either. Like, I... The inks here, especially like I've seen some amazing Bennett work over the years, and this isn't it. And I wanted more from this, and the story just didn't really work. And you have the creepy idea that something's happening at that uh, mental health facility that uh, uh, that the Hawkman's female friend's dad might be going to. Eh, this issue was forgettable. Uh, there have been some good issues, but this is not one of them. Six out of ten. Uh, next up is Scarlet Spider 15. This book needs to decide where it wants to go and what it wants to be because when it first started, it was fantastic and it is just all over the place. You'll have a few really good issues and then it just goes right down the rabbit hole. Uh, it's written by Chris, um, Chris Yost, uh, artwork by uh, Fam. Um, I like Fam as an artist. This is not his best work at all. Uh, Koi Fam with Edwards and Sequera on pencils. Basically, it's like. See, last issue kind of gave some... It, it could have been interesting because you had Kane kind of succumbing to the other. And in this issue, you have him fighting against the wolves that quote-unquote killed him. And then, uh, Racely basically is able to uh, draw the monster out of him and make sure he goes back to being Kane. What? What was the point of this? Like, I just... I don't understand what the point is. Like, it kind of was a cool, kind of weird concept. But uh, all she has to do is kind of tap into him and uh, make him human again. And uh, and then give him a haircut and a and uh, and a shave, and then he can get his tattoos redone, and that's it. Like, ugh, I just don't care. Like, I want to like this book. I really want to enjoy Scott Spider. I want to enjoy what Yost is putting down. I want to enjoy Kane's adventures. This issue just felt like a complete waste of time. If this had been like a few issues and and it were really building up to something, and it was actually, it felt like there was a reason for him to even go back to being human again, like. That would have been really cool, but there's nothing like that. So what the hell was the point of this? Uh, 6 out of 10. Next up is uh, Superior Spider-Man 6 AU. Um, I actually really dug this. Um, I didn't actually buy this myself. I read someone else's copy. It's by Christos Gage. I work by Dexter Soy. Um, this is actually a really fun kind of romp. Um, you have... It's basically in and around uh, Age of Ultron number 3. Um, you have Spider-Man and Quicksilver teaming up, and he goes to uh, Horizon Labs, and he comes up with a way that he thinks he can take on Ultron by using what he's done in the past to uh, control machines, etc. Uh, and then he tries to take on Ultron as a result. So cool, so freaking awesome! Like that is that is, if you were Doc Ock as Spider-Man, that's exactly what you would do. You, you're, you're used to controlling machines. You're used to tapping in and taking them over. So I like that it played up his hubris. It played up his arrogance. Uh, the fact that he is a different person. And uh, and he's not Peter Parker. And I really liked it. Like I wish that he felt like this in the main book. Because that feels more like Peter Parker. Obviously because it was written so long ago. And they try to adapt some dialogue. But it's hard to really make wholesale changes. Whereas here like this is this is a great um, uh, showcase for showing how different uh, Spider-Man can be when he's when he really is just Doc Ock. Like, Doc Ock's mind and Spider-Man's body, what could it be? What could it do? The best parts of both of them in certain ways. I really liked it. I gave it an 8 out of 10. I did not expect to enjoy it nearly as much as I did. Uh, next up is Talon number 6. Uh, I give this an 8 out of 10. Pretty solid read. I like that you're getting more of the idea that, that there's more going on this behind the scenes than we realize. 
especially with regards to um, Sebastian. Uh, you have the different owls, uh, sorry, the different um, talons kind of coming after uh, Calvin Rose. This is a fun read. It's written by Scott Snyder and James Tiny in the fourth. Artwork by Guillaume March. Uh, I really liked kind of seeing how Calvin Rose goes up against these various different talons and how the talons interact with each other. I like seeing that the, um, his friend is realizing that you know, maybe not, not all is right with uh, Sebastian after all. Kind of seeing what goes, how that goes. I like the idea that the uh, the people kind of directing the talents don't want them basically going anywhere near Batman because Batman's cost so cost them so much over the last few years, uh, sorry months. Um, really interesting, cool stuff, and I'm really interested to see where the cliffhanger goes and what it means. Uh, I gave it an eight out of ten. It's been a pleasant surprise since it started, and it's been a good read. Uh, next up is Teen Titans eighteen. I uh, gave this book a 6.5 out of 10. This was all over the place. Uh, first of all, I hate the cover because it's a Requiem issue, but uh, Red Robin looks like he's smiling, so that's creepy. He's holding, like, a dead Robin's costume, and he's creepy. He's creepily smiling. I don't like that. Um, it's written by Scott Lobdell, artwork by Eddie Barrows, who I really enjoy his art. Uh, it's two Eddies on this book because I prefer him in a book like Nightwing. Um, you have some great kind of flashback stuff of basically Tim dealing with the death of Damien. That part's kind of interesting, but then you have the Teen Titans kind of having this new headquarters, um, and Red Robin kind of being like, you know, we're gonna we're gonna be here, this is our team, we're doing this together. It's just, the issue couldn't quite des- decide what it wanted to be and how it wanted to be. Um, I thought it was interesting where you have them kind of going to Belrev. Um, eh, the issue has some really good com- uh, components, and also has a lot of parts that aren't really all that good at all, so it's kind of hard to decide. Uh, I don't really care for Trigon on this weird horse, so I could do without that. Overall, though, I mean, as a Red Robin um, kind of focus, it was more interesting, but in giving the team a little bit more of a purpose and a headquarters and a place to be, and, and hopefully give them more of a raison d'etre, but it uh, wasn't the strongest way of doing that, but again, it wasn't, the, it wasn't horrible, and the artwork by Eddie Barrows is enjoyable. Much stronger than the script. Six and a half out of ten is what I gave it. Um, next up is Thunderbolts number seven. Uh, this is a this book is destined to always be a five or a six out of ten. It's first of all, once again, we're going to have a creepy Electron Punisher cover. I hate that they're together. I don't think it makes any sense. I don't like Punisher was being written so well in his own book by Greg Rucka, and then they left him off in a way that looked like the character wouldn't be uh, escaping anytime soon, which of course he did easily. Um, so you have Daniel Way writing it. Artwork in this issue is by Phil Noto, which is definitely an improvement um, over where this book had been going earlier. And I kind of I actually really like the artwork. The artwork by Noto is actually pretty strong. Um, the problem is that the story really isn't all that great. Like you have um, the team basically on a sub and dealing with a bunch of different things, dealing with the fact that uh, Frank and Electra are together. Uh, Deadpool kind of has a problem with that, doesn't like that. The team basically tries to fight against uh, Red Hulk, and it doesn't work so well. Um, I don't know. I mean, th- this book could be could be more interesting, and I'm glad that we're finally uh, looking at something different, and that in terms of finally we're got a better artist, so this book could finally maybe take off. This issue just didn't quite manage to do it. But, you know, it's on the right path. I... I'm actually, as I was flipping through it, I think maybe I was a little hard on it. I'm going to give it a 7. It wasn't as bad as I maybe thought it was, and it's definitely not as bad as it has been. Um, So that's Thunderbolts. Next up is Uncanny Avengers. This is number 5. Well, it's a big improvement. It's an 8 out of 10. Partially, this is because you have great artwork by Olivier Coipel. Man can't do bad artwork. The story is a little bit more interesting as well. You have Kang showing up to mess with the Apocalypse Twins. Um, you have Wonder Man, Wonder Man joining the team as a PR consultant. I'm not totally sold on him being, um, you know, a pacifist now. But I, I, he, first of all, the artwork is spectacular. I mean, Coipel does a great job. I like that Rogue is trying to, uh, you know, take down a, a classic uh, Avengers painting and put up a painting of Charles Xavier. So it's kind of interesting how it's working. Uh, this issue is so much better. Uh, you have Sun, uh, Sunfire being asked to join the team. 
you have a, a conference being uh, pulled so that the team can really uh, introduce itself to the world and Havoc is, is kind of saying that, you know, I'm the leader of this team. You have uh, Wonder Man dealing with uh, trying to protect Wanda from the Grim Reaper. Um, this is actually a pretty solid issue. I mean, and next issue is Thor vs. Apocalypse, which could be really cool as well. I like that we're continuing Recommender kind of de- dabbling in the Apocalypse ideas. Uh, so that's really cool. Um, so yeah, like this is a, a this almost feels like a totally different book. The first arc was I found it was schlocky. I hated what happened with uh, uh, Professor X's brain and Red Skull's body. I just felt the story didn't really work for me. The artwork seemed rushed by Cassidy. This issue just felt like a, a breath of fresh air. You have Quipel delivering some fantastic artwork. The story is much stronger. Everything's much better. Um, so that that was an eight out of ten. And that uh, brings us to our last four books, uh, the first of which is Uncanny X-Force number three. So let's just jump right into it. So uh, this is, let's see, Uncanny X-Force number three. Just pull this up. So um, obviously X-Force, this version of Uncanny X-Force is quite different. Uh, Sam Humphreys is writing it with artwork by Ron Gurney. It's obviously not what Rick Remender was putting together. It's something completely different. And I at least appreciate that they're trying something different. Uh, I'm not really sure how I feel about the book in general. Um, it's kind of got a weird cast, but I like that. It's got uh, Puck, Spiral, uh, Psylocke, and uh, Storm. And then you're also dealing with them being up against um, Bishop, who is time displaced. And hopefully this will be the storyline where they kind of maybe fix Bishop. And maybe don't have him being such a ra- raving lunatic anymore. Uh, him killing you know, wanted to kill Hope for so long, kind of ruined the character in a lot of people's eyes, especially mine. Uh, I just wanted him to be the character I grew up with. Like, I was, yesterday, I was leafing through my uh, new X-Men omnibus, and I was going th- through the part where, uh, you know, Bishop is, like, you know, investigating who shot uh, Emma Frost, and it's really cool stuff, and it's, he's written really well, and it was in a good era for him. Uh, he still didn't have a purpose, but at least it was a little bit more interesting, but, uh, yeah, it's just not the same because now he's been so brought down a weird path. Um, now there is some re- cool stuff here with Phantom X, which I really enjoyed. Uh, the two Phantom X's, I should say. Um, I'm hoping that at some point we realize what exactly is going on with uh, Bishop here. Um, I didn't care much for it. Um, I did like to use this barbel though. I thought that was really cool. Um, Hopefully, yeah, I, I don't know, this this isn't awful, but it's just kind of strange. You have, uh, you know, Psylocke ending up in Bishop's head, Bishop's head's all messed up, a lot of those weird things going on in there. I'm hoping that, again, that they'll fix Bishop at some point, and maybe this will be the storyline that does it. Um, the issue on the whole, 6.5 out of 10, is kind of fair. It's not the strongest issue, it's not the strongest book so far. It has some potential, but so far it's not really capitalizing and uh, making good on it yet. But it could. I'm hoping hoping it does. Uh, next up is Wolverine and the X-Men number 27. Now, that is a book that, uh, first of all, has been wildly inconsistent. I've said it many times before. This is not good. Um, you have the X, the kids are in the Savage Land, and they're ostensibly on an on a expedition with Wolverine. But uh, Wolverine is kind of taken out of the running uh, because he's captured uh, and imprisoned with uh with dog um so by dog sorry so jason aaron wrote this with ramon perez on artwork uh this is savage learning part three generation dog it's basically now first of all the the beginning of it is very awkward because the artwork's not that great you have the uh the faculty of the gene gray school all together i don't like how beast is being portrayed in the art it just makes him look weird like he's got um he almost looks like he has this way too big a forehead and then he has like a uh unlike color face instead of having the way the way he used to um and so that it was a nice establishing scene but it, it didn't go too far parts of this issue were really strong because you had wolverine basically talking with all the different kids when they were on their way to the savage land and giving them like little hints or saying little anecdotes to them or imparting certain wisdom upon them and part of which I thought was really interesting and cool how I harken back to his own history etc um, so that part was really awesome but then you have them teaming up with Dog who is a ridiculous character uh, there's no I don't care at all about the, about him as a character and being this weird time traveler like 
I, I don't know. I, I don't know what the point is. And if you're going to bring in Dog, like there's so much cooler, more interesting ways that they could have used Dog, and this just isn't it. And um, yeah, so I, I mean, that's my main problem here is is the use of Dog. So that's why it only ended up being a six out of ten. There's some really strong moments. The artwork is not strong at all. So you have a few strong moments with Wolverine imparting wisdom on these kids, but then you also have some really ludicrous writing with Dog and Dog giving everyone guns, and it's just. No, thank you. I'm mo- moving on. Next issue. Uh, so next up is X-Men Legacy number se- uh, number 8. Sorry, It's hard to keep track of some of these Marvel Now books because they publish so often. They, they, you know, they're already at like 8 or 9. You know, like It's kind of crazy how fast they're going with some of these books. Uh, X-Men Legacy, this is kind of a fun read. First of all, love the cover. Um, you have uh, basically like a model and then you have a, a, a hairbrush not a hairbrush, you have a, a paintbrush kind of making it look like uh, the hair that uh, Legion would have. Kind of an interesting take. Uh, I like that it's basically the issue is um, Legion and Blindfold having kind of an astral plane psychic date uh, and spending time together and they're looking at this this kid who's got this mutant power that kind of everyone believe, you know is, is happy with something he's done and, and then it kind of goes a little bit crazy and weird and then you have Legion fighting against a monster and then uh, you know, Legion's able to fight it off with the help of the Xavier that's in his head, and then he comes to the resolution of how he should help this this kid and how he's trying to kind of ask out this uh, blindfold because uh, they're they're technically nemesises, but they also kind of like each other. Uh, so it's kind of cool. Um, it's kind of a weird. It's it's definitely a weird book, and uh, but I I was intrigued and I found it enjoyable. I, I like using blindfold in this and giving him someone to play off of was kind of cool um this is kind of a ludicrous thing to even mention but uh after the last page of the issue uh they have a a brief one page kind of like panel showing next uh the cover of the next issue uh but also right next to it you have something which i didn't think they did a lot of anymore it's like x X x-men titles on sale and it has just like a brief you know all the different it's almost like a checklist saying that these are all the books that came coming out this month um, and this is what's happening in the stories, and I actually really dug that. I don't know why, but it, it just harkened back to a, a different era, and so that I kind of enjoyed and liked. It's just a weird, random thing. So on the whole, I gave X Men Legacy number eight a seven out of ten. And that brings us to our last book of the month, which is Young sort of the Week, Young Avengers number three. Uh, I gave this, I believe, yeah, six and a half out of ten. It's not not that strong. Um, it's just it's just such a weird book. I mean, it's got some interesting ideas to it. You have the idea that Wiccan really tapped into something when he used his powers to try and bring uh, Hulkling's um, mother back from the or from a timeline where she didn't die and ended up being something quite different. And basically, he's messed with the fact that there's a few of them that are kind of intrinsically linked to be these the you know, this next group, this next group of young Avengers that Loki was trying to kind of help cultivate. And as a result, all their kind of parental figures are kind of going crazy uh, all at the same time. And you have Kid Loki trying to convince the uh, kids that they should trust him and believe in him. Um, I found part of it really interesting. The artwork's kind of a a different sensibility. It's obviously not what you'd expect from um, a a mainline book. But it's still interesting. And I just realized something, and I want to go back for a second. Uh, I did not say, I believe, that X-Men Legacy, the artwork, was done by uh, Tanang Huat, and it was written by Simon Spurrier. Sorry, I just realized I didn't actually go over the creative team for that book. Uh, for Young Avengers number three, uh, it's written by, um, let's see, Kieran Gillen, with artwork by Jamie McKelvey and Mike Norton. Uh, overall, again, it has kind of an indie feel in the artwork. It's not a bad book, um, but it's not the Young Avengers the way they used to be, and so... It's kind of like, at least the Young Avengers are still there. It's kind of like how Thunderbolts is not in any way a Thunderbolts like it used to be. It's not in any way the same team by any stretch of the imagination. At least with Young Avengers, you have some of the same characters here. But they're just, it's, it's definitely a different type of book. I think once we get more into Loki's involvement, more Loki involvement is a good thing. It'll make the book, I think, much more enjoyable and stronger to read because Kid Loki is a great character to read about. Um, so I think that there's a lot of potential for the book. It's just not quite there yet. So this issue I gave a 6.5 out of 10. So let's just run through quickly the books I didn't get a chance to look at. Uh, smaller, list than, smaller list than normal. Uh, they included All-Star Western number 18, Deadpool, Illustrated, 
uh, number three, Fury Max number ten, Fury of Firestorm the Nuclear Man number eighteen, I Vampire eighteen, Journey into Mystery number six fifty, Justice League Dark number eighteen, Superman eighteen, and Ultimate Comics Wolverine number two. Um, now, thanks for again for joining us for this episode. I wanted to just uh, say a few words about upcoming episodes. Uh, so this has been. Uh, episode number 65 episode 66 will be coming on uh, wednesday april the 3rd it'll be our next and latest uh talking hero clicks episode um hopefully it'll have myself and at least two special guests uh well one regular regular guest for uh hero clicks episodes which will be uh nathan struck uh we'll be having our uh a special guest who was in our last uh, Talking Hero Clicks episode, Tom Kerr, will be joining us. And hopefully we'll also have him again in Orlando. So hopefully we'll be all four of us uh, sat in, sitting down and chatting uh, Hero Clicks and talking it. I uh, also want to make mention of episode 68, which will be coming up on Wednesday, April 10th, uh, which will be uh, a fun episode. It'll be a kind of a book of the month style episode where uh, I'll be sitting down with uh, Nathan Strzok and Paul Scorez and myself. Um, We'll be looking at uh, three different uh, books. We'll be looking at the recent Hawkeye and My Life as a Weapon trade paperback, the recent Batman and Court of Owls trade paperback, and as well as looking at uh, East of West number one, which I actually already mentioned in this episode. But we'll be looking at it uh, just because we wanted some image content in the Book of the Month episode. Uh, so it should be a fun episode, um, kind of chatting about you know these current storylines and what what they're like i mean they're easily easy to purchase because uh they just came out recently in this month in uh in march and uh should be a fun episode so look forward to those that's episode 66 and 68 and hopefully we'll have some good stuff coming up in the next few weeks as well um as i mentioned in episode 64 which was our uh spotlight on the oz the great and powerful episode with my wife kelly um, we're going to hopefully be having more episodes throughout the summer focusing on the big uh, comic book movie releases. So uh, we'll have uh, a lot more spotlight episodes to come. So thanks again for joining us for Comic Shenanigans. Uh, I am your host, Adam Chapman. You can always send me an email at comicshenanigans at gmail.com or you can like us on Facebook. Uh, we're also usually posting all the episodes on HC Realms, so you can always uh, post there if you have any questions, concerns, comments, things you want to let us know. Um, so thanks again for joining us and we'll be sure to see you next time. Bye-bye.